You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Are you ready for the naked economy? In May 2010, four co-workers in London rode naked on the tube during their morning commute. Wearing nothing but shoes, the co-ed quartet made quite an impression on the more stodgily dressed commuters. While many might dismiss this as a mere stunt or mere exhibitionism, these workers had a loftier goal in mind. By spending the entire workday together naked, from the morning commute, through the daily office routines, to the evening wind down over what we guess was more than a few drinks, members of the group wanted to break down barriers, improve communication, and develop higher levels of trust amongst themselves. In these tough economic times, people will try anything to improve productivity, get an edge on the competition, and find some release from the monotony of meetings, emails, and conference calls. Since then, this experiment has been repeated dozens of times at offices and workplaces around the world. Warning, you might want to take close stock of yourself and your coworkers before trying it at your place of work. You'll be pleased and relieved to know that in our version of the naked economy, we can keep all our clothes on. In fact, what we're suggesting in the rise of the naked economy is much more radical than simply showing up to work in the buff. After all, is trudging through the same mundane tasks that fill your day with your clothes off all that revolutionary? This is not only about whether your rear end should be covered when it hits the office chair, but whether it needs to be there at all. This is the quintessential question, not just for you, but for our economy. We believe that if we want to create jobs, increase our collective potential for innovation, and maybe even save the planet and our sanity, we need to completely rethink how we've organized our economy. And we need to start by stripping work bare. Ryan Coonerty is the co-founder and chief strategist for Next Space. He served two terms as mayor of Santa Cruz and is the author of Etched in Stone, Enduring Words from the Nation's Monuments, with Jeremy Neuner, who also co-founded Next Space, he wrote, The Rise of the Naked Economy, How to Benefit from the Changing Workplace. Thank you for joining me, Ryan. Thank you, Rick. I'm a huge fan, so this is an honor. Ryan, one of the things that really struck me about this book is this complete revision of what work is. And I think that's really the essential thing that we're coming to grips with here at the turn of the 21st century, that the sheer definition of what work has been for the last 100 years has gone out the window. That's exactly right. But in some ways, what's going out the window is the distortion of work that we've had for the past 100 years. Before that, since since we first emerged from caves and in teams hunted down mammoths, work has been a pretty simple concept. You trade your talents, your time, your energy, and you get some payment or reward. We've clothed work now in casual Fridays and office parties and two-week vacations and all these other agreements. And we think that's distorted work, and we also think it's a pretty short-lived phenomenon that we should usher out the door. I'd like you to talk about what you think first needs to go from work. You have a list of things in the book, and I think that these are both informative, and it's kind of funny the, the how when you start taking these things out and noticing them, it's funny how obviously out of place they are. Yeah, it's, it's when you take a step back, the whole system doesn't make a whole lot of sense anymore. And so our short list of things that we think that need to go are the 45-minute commute through snarl traffic to your office, 
your cubicle, heck, maybe even your entire office building could probably go. Managers who see their purpose as managing you rather than the project itself. Your company-sponsored health insurance plan, your company-sponsored retirement plan. Most of your coworkers and colleagues, however, we have a solution where you get to be surrounded by people that you admire and respect and how essential that is. The culture that says 2 p.m. on Mondays, no matter the weather, your children's schedule, or how you feel belongs to your employer, while 2 p.m. is on Saturdays is, quote, your time. Two weeks of vacation, two weeks for sickness, and two months for the birth of your child. Your job itself, and for most people that may not be a bad thing. And then that 45-minute commute back home through snarl traffic after you spent most of your day not working at your happiest and most productive. You know, one of the things about this book that struck me is that for many of us who read this, it's going to be a vision that's both dystopian and utopian. There will be things in here, there are things in here that I read this, uh, they terrified me. I said, I don't want that to go. But there are other things I said, that sounds great. <laughs> that's, that's exactly true. And that's, you know, in part, the, the naked metaphor is part of that. Being naked can be a pretty scary thing. You can feel very vulnerable, and that's a reality. Being naked, you can also have a lot of fun. What we hope to do is to say, look, we're heading towards this economy where everybody's on their own, where everybody is an entrepreneur, and they're responsible for their own living. That can be very scary. If we collectively build some structures and some policies and some business strategies, uh, it can be less scary and more productive and more prosperous. If we sort of just let everyone push everybody out on their own and hope they make it, I think there's plenty of reason to be scared, and that's not the direction I want our people to go or our community to go. You know, one of the things you talk about here is that essentially we, we need new physical spaces to work in, and I think that's really important because everybody's always so used to going to the office, the factory. Those are like iconic items in the American landscape. Yeah, and I think for the Industrial Revolution, the idea was everyone had to be at the same place at the same time in order to produce the goods in the industrial economy. That's quickly disappeared so that not only are people having to go to the office to create those goods, but they have to check their cell phones while they're watching their kids' soccer games and they have to work nights and weekends. So place is no longer as essential. And there's a billion mobile workers out there. And what a billion mobile workers means is that you can do your job from anywhere. So let's figure out where people are happiest and most productive. And when we created Next Space, which is a co-working space, shared office space here in Santa Cruz for about 200 people, and we have nine locations now with a couple thousand members, the idea was let's create some place so that you're not working by yourself or alone in a coffee shop. Let's work in a place where you have a community. And because people, while technology has allowed us to work at home and by ourselves, we're still wired to be wanting to be around other people, just to have a face-to-face -face contact, to smile, to share a joke. That's really, really important for people's creativity, for their happiness. We need to build spaces that, that allow people to have that kind, of, that kind of place in their lives. You give a great example of this. I think that from here, of somebody who built an app, that, that it took a team of four people who happened to meet, and, and uh, how this kind of workplace facilitated that uh, the creation of that app. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, we, we see the future of work as being very project-based. You will be pulled together for a project, 
and then you'll disaggregate and, and go your own ways, and then you'll pull together for another project. In many ways, the movie industry is a perfect example of that, where people who work together, some of whom work together many times, some of whom will only work together occasionally, get pulled together, and then they get pulled apart. And in fact, they've done studies of Broadway shows, and the best models are shows the most successful Broadway shows have been ones where there's a core team of people who've worked together before, but they bring in enough new voices and enough new experience, new, new people, that that was the sort of creative difference between that and an average show. And so we think we need to create the physical place for that. And co-working is one model where people can come together and over a cup of coffee or over lunch or just sitting next to each other, they can find the, the quick teams that they need to. Because just because you have a bunch of friends on Facebook or LinkedIn doesn't mean that those people are your friends. It's, it's always good. You need some physical proximity to, to one another in order to have real create, creativity and innovation. Early in the book, you give us some kind of terrorizing figures. 30% of all good jobs, good jobs, can be outsourced. Not a fun thing to think about. We are facing a transformation of our economy. And when our economies transform, there's a lot of disruption and people, there's a lot of pain. You saw that with the agricultural revolution. You saw that with the industrial revolution. You saw that with the knowledge-based revolution. And we think we are in a new, heading towards a new revolution. And the idea is, if we can figure it out, that this is gonna happen ahead of time, let's build some structures, let's build some training programs, let's build places like NextSpace and programs that allow people to thrive and succeed rather than sort of throwing everybody out there and asking them to find their way. And so this change is happening. There's estimates that 40% of the American workforce, 60 million Americans will be contingent workers by 2020. That's that's a huge percentage. And we if we don't figure out how to make those, let those people thrive and give them a safety net, we're looking at, a, at, at problems that we, likes of which we haven't seen for a long time. Talk a little bit about live ops and Mechanical Turk. Sure. So you have companies in Silicon Valley that are spending enormous amounts of venture capital with the idea that you can take work, break it down into the smallest possible pieces, and then hire people to do that one small piece over and over and over again tagging pictures on the internet, translating documents. You wouldn't be hired to translate the whole document, be hired to translate part of a document. The idea is is that it breaks work down into its simplest components and then it can be either automated or outsourced. And so that's a future and that's a reality and they're even doing it, you know, what people thought, okay, well this will just happen in the industrial world. Well, it's happening to lawyers, it's happening to accountants, it's certainly happening in higher education, it's happening in journalism. People need to be aware that this is this trend is happening. So let's let's figure out a way that you can compete and succeed in that in that new world. One of the things that this book does really well is it gives us kind of a history of work. We need to understand the past to prepare for the future. That's absolutely right. I mean, the the modern version of work where you have a breadwinner who goes to an office 40 hours a week and they get their health care and they get retirement plans and they do all that is a a really recent phenomenon in in human history. It's a blip and it's very, very quickly going away for better and worse. There's no doubt it has an impact. But if you look back at the previous models we had for work where you had a farm in a small community not only did you not have anyone providing a pension or paid time off, and you were, you were responsible for your output, but you also had, the important thing is you had a community there that would come and do barn raisings, right? They would help you build your barn, or you could trade chickens for a, a cow that you needed. And there was an entire infrastructure that was set up that allowed people to 
thrive. We do, we do much better when we cooperate than when we stick it to one another. That's been a feature of, of work for millions of years, and it's going to need to be a more important feature for the future of work. The key phrase for the rise of the naked con- economy is, you say, is question everything. Yeah, on the list that I earlier mentioned of all the things that need to go, when you think about those things, uh, how necessary are they? How necessary is it that you are in your office at 2 p.m. when your child's home sick, right? Like, is, 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 it, is it a necessity or are you there because that's the convention of it? How necessary is it that you rely on your employer for your retirement? And that's in- becoming increasingly less so because the uh, employers are they've gotten out of the uh, defined benefit pensions and now they're getting into the 401ks and now they're doing less matching and that you know that's going away so okay if that's going away let's let's figure out a new way to incentivize people to save over time you know a lot of this is accidents of the tax code uh, healthcare as we've currently provided or don't provide it to people is an accident of the tax code it's not set in stone so let's not have Let's not make our model employer-based healthcare when there are no more employers. You have a lot of great uh, people in here you talk about. And so I'd like to talk about uh, Ben Gran, who went from a cubicle to be complete freedom. This is a guy who was working for a, a bank regulatory division in Des Moines, Iowa, and he was actually breaking down in tears on the job. He hated it so much, but he had he had one child and another child on the way, and so the idea of just sort of going out on his own didn't seem feasible. And then he discovered a platform called Elance, which is a, um, sort of an eBay for services. You, you, you bid and provide services instead of products, and he slowly grew his business until now. He is in complete control of his time. He gets to spend more time with his family. He's happier in his work, and I mean, and the important thing for us was this is not a Silicon Valley story. This is a this is a Midwest story. This is Des Moines, Iowa, and he's figured out how to translate his talents into the global workplace into a into a sustainable living. You know, one of the things that's true as you talk about is that most of us ascend, there's this kind of divide between the rich and the poor. But also, you know, most of us work at a place that, not to put it too politely, sucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the latest Pew research numbers came out just a week ago show that Americans are profoundly unhappy, right? And they're profoundly unhappy at work. And when they're unhappy at work, not only do you have to feel bad for them because you have a short time on earth and if, and if you're spending the majority of your time not with your family but at work and you don't like it, that's that's tragic. But it also means reduced productivity, reduced innovation, and we're, we're heading in the wrong direction. So let's look at that and find solutions. And they're not crazy solutions. So let people work at home or co-working spaces one or two days a week. Let people not have to stay at a job because they need health care. Let them go out and start a company and, ha- and have health care uh, if you start your company. Let's not hang on, cling to old, outdated policies that make people unhappy and our economy worse. I'd like you to describe what you call, you know, there's the old social contract. Get a job, work at it for 40 years, you'll retire, we'll pay for your retirement, end of story, you know, burial plot. 
talk about what you see as the new social contract. Sure. So the old social contract is the model that we're familiar with from Mad Men or whatever, where you go to work and you spend your career at one or two companies. They, they sort of take care of you all the way through. They, you get a gold watch, a nice pension, you retire, you move on. That was a nice model. We should note that it only it primarily worked for white males who wanted a conventional career. It didn't work for sort of everybody else. And so we sort of hold it up as a great model, but it really sort of was, was a pretty limited model. What we see now is you have two huge demographic shifts that people need to pay attention to. One, baby boomers are aging out of the workforce, but they have to continue to work either because they want to or they need to, but they don't want to work in the same way. They have parents to take care of, they have grandkids, they want to travel, so they're not going to work in that same way. On the same hand, you have millennials, who are the people, uh, youngest folks just entering the workforce, which is the biggest talent pool of innovation and creativity. And they've said, one, I don't believe in that old system. I don't believe that any company is going to take care of me for 30 years and provide me with a pension or anything else. And so I'm not going to trade my time and give my loyalty to an institution that's not going to give give it back. And I want to live where I want to live. The thing about millennials is they choose where they want to live and then they find a job, whereas in the, the old model was you found a job and they told you where you were going to live. They want to have it constantly change. They want to have free time when they have free time and they're willing to work hard at odd hours. So if you have the two sort of largest population segments saying we're going to work fundamentally differently and then you throw in working mothers who aren't gonna, don't want to be stuck behind a desk and want to spend time with their child, and young parents, you're talking about the majority of the working population saying, we don't accept that old model, especially when you're not providing us with the pension or the security or, or very good health care or anything else. So what's the point in that making that trade-off? In the new contract, you talk about living wage, health and retirement security, healthy families, and a, essentially a healthy social safety net. So I'd like you to talk about how we get those things out of people who are not employed by big corporations, who can't necessarily afford to pony up to support some of these things. Sure. Well, a lot of what a lot of those things that, that people think of as work, which is pension and health care and all that, people are paying a lot for. So you're, you already have people paying a lot for it. Um, and so the question is, how do you provide it for people who, who currently aren't doing that? Um, and then we think that let's look at let's look at a couple models, right? Let's look at a, a a government model where we say, look, if you work, I don't care whether you work three jobs that are all 18 hours a week, or if you work one job that's 40 hours a week, let's make sure you have health care, right? That seems to me like a pretty reasonable and and you'll have a, and you'll have some sort of social security and retirement. That seems to me to be a reasonable expectation for society to set up. The second part is, if the government won't do it, let's do what Sarah Horowitz at the Freelancers Union calls the new mutualism. Let's set up guilds and healthcare funds that we can all buy into, that we can manage ourselves and drive down costs. Um, you know, when, when you need the old version of work, when you were on the farm and you need to raise a barn, you didn't go and fill out government paperwork and everything else to have them come build a barn for you. You got your neighbors together and you built a barn. Well, let's do the same thing for retirement. Let's do the same thing for office space and car sharing and healthcare. And I know it sounds easier. I'm making it sound easier than it maybe actually is. But it's also not as complicated, I think, as people are making it out to be. 
I think that's one of the, the main virtues of a book like this is by forcing us to take a hard look at things that seem impossible. That's the first step towards realizing that they are, in fact, possible. And we tried to include enough stories of people from all different backgrounds. These are not just technology people that we, that we profile in the book because we want people to really question it and find somebody in the book that they can connect with in order so they can start living their dream. I mean, to have so many people unhappy at work every day is, is a tragedy, and we need to figure out a way to give people a little bit of hope and aspiration to go out and do something that they want to do. In a global workplace, if you have a passion, you can follow it. We have a guy in the book uh, who's here from Santa Cruz, Jay Nichols, who's the leading re- one of the leading uh, researchers in the world on turtles. And, you know, 40 years ago, if you could find a job being the turtle guy, uh, it'd be very, very challenging. Now he has a blog. He has he speaks at conferences. He has a nonprofit. He gets grants from different a variety of different uh, research institutions, and he's figured out how to translate that knowledge again in a global market into a living. Uh, this speaks to one of the the things you talk about in in the the new naked economy. That one way to go is to specialize and super specialize to really become focused on one thing. Yeah, so we say, you know, okay, let's, if the economy is shifting, where's your opportunity? And one of the opportunities is what we call the super specialist. If you can find and solve that one problem in a, in a world economy as big as, as, as we are, um, you can make a good living. And to continue to be that, that one expert is, is, you can make a very good living at it. The other thing we say is, okay, but we don't need a world of all specialists. At the end of the day, you need, we're human beings and we need people to pull us together. We need people to translate the very specialized knowledge into, into broad appeal. And so we need, we need to be training generalists. And we're not doing a very good job at training very good journalists, uh, generalists, and we're not doing a good job of recognizing their value in the workplace. Pull, people who can pull together the specialists, a bunch of specialists in these fast teams in order to create a product. I, I thought your portion on the generalists was really interesting because you point out it's a tough sell, isn't it? It's a tough sell because you it's hard to articulate. If you are the one person who knows how to code in a specific way, the market knows how to value that. If you're the one person who knows the people who know how to code, that's really hard to value, but it's vital. And we need to recognize how to train those people and how to recognize those people. Was it Walter Isaacson who said that rather than knowing a lot about one specific thing, it's also really helpful and, and very saleable to know a little about a lot. The biggest breakthroughs co- come from these cross-disciplinary approaches where you bring a lot of different expertises together. And you need to have somebody who can see all those different approaches. And universities are perfect examples where you have people who have focused so specialized in one thing, and that's great in that particular field, but you need somebody who can tie those folks together in order to create the innovations, who understand algae blooms in the ocean and how you then translate that into the into the energy making and how you translate that into agriculture and how you translate that. You need to pull these teams together and generalists play a really key role. One of the things we also learn in this book is uh, the, the new corporation, which is, as you put it, barely corporate. And I, I, uh, appropriate uh, to go with the title of the book. What we've gone from is uh, this kind of hierarchy to team building. And I think that really makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're saying that the new corporations are going to require entirely new mindsets and approaches. 
uh, they've been very sort of male and hierarchical, and they're changing dramatically in a networked world. And what we see the future of corporations as being is small teams that then that they innovate and create the product and, and carry the vision forward. But they're going to pull in contingent workers, they're going to pull in other companies, they're going to pull in other specialists and generalists in order to create the models, uh, in order to get success. And this book begins with a really interesting term, fractional worker. Uh, and I see that, that's, I think that that's going to be the majority of people will counterintuitively become fractional workers. Yeah, I mean, I think that the direction we're heading is that everyone's going to be a fractional worker in one way or another, which means that you are responsible for getting your work. Uh, you are responsible for making your success and you can't rely on someone to sit there for a couple hours and check their Facebook page and then do their other work. And so if you're only getting paid for the time you actually work, you got to figure out a way to get a lot of different employers. You also describe a world in which crisis is the norm, normal, and I think we've accomplished that. Yes, we have. I was thinking about just that. I mean, the idea that the National Security Agency and Booz Allen, one of the biggest consulting firms in the world, has been fundamentally disrupted by one guy, Edward Snowden, who pulls all this information together and then puts it out through diffuse sources and is now throwing global politics into disarray, is a perfect example of the world we're coming into. And so the question is, in this chaotic world, how do individuals somehow manage to navigate that to success and prosperity? And we think it's through collectivism, right? It's it, You're going to need a community because people on their own won't be able to do it. So how do you build your community in a way that allows you to succeed? And I, I think one of the things that's clear is that uh, physical proximity really helps. That when you're around people that you're from, with whom you're familiar, but you don't necessarily know very well, it's that's where the uh, the unexpected sparks of intuition and innovation arise. That and that's why innovation. Jane Jacobs discovered this with the the cities. Is innovation happens in cities because people are in physical proximity to one another, right? They bump into each other. The more spontaneous interactions, or here in next space we call it the next space effect. Mm -hmm. The more people bump into each other, the better the ideas will be. The more innovation uh, will come. And even in big corporations that are hanging on to the old model, they're now redesigning their for, for plan in order to allow for more spontaneous interactions, right? Oftentimes, much more gets done standing outside the meeting, just talking, than what happens inside the meeting. And corporations are finally starting to recognize that. I think they're probably starting to recognize two people would rather be outside <laughs> than inside. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It strikes me that in order to deal with all this, especially some of the team building, what you're looking at, and you talk about this, is uh, a new form of organization, and it's almost what it, like what I would call orchestration. You you find the various parts and blend them together in much the same way an orchestra works. Yeah, I mean that's exactly right. You need to pull people together very very quickly in order to have this work, and you need to have them keeping working together. Um, one of the examples we use is WordPress, which is the backbone for most websites in the, in the world. And they are, they, you're allowed to live anywhere you want for WordPress. So you want to go live in Vietnam for a couple of weeks, go live in Vietnam for a couple of weeks. San Francisco, they have no, they have no headquarters. They have nowhere they want to go. Uh, Matt Mullenweg, who runs it, said, I'd much rather have people be out living the lives they want to lead than be at work pretending they're working. But he still flies them together every quarter. So if you, no matter where you are, you get flown together in order to have that personal connection 
in order to innovate, in order to build those relationships that human beings are, are wired to build. You talk about the different kinds of people who are going to be in these corporations, and you divide them up into three, and I think this is an interesting division. Creatives, detailers, and conformists, and creatives are obviously people who create. Detailers are people who are good with the numbers, and the conformists are the people who implement. Those are categories that some business school folks have come up with in their studies, and they actually study how many creatives you need in a team and how many conformists you need in a team, and you actually you need quite a few conformists. Having a bunch of creative people all in one place trying to work together is not going to work. You need, you need people to sort of be the glue that holds them together and to execute these ideas. And so recognizing what will work best with teams uh, and how teams will work best is really important. And then how these people find each other, right? And so platforms, whether it's Elance or Etsy or whatever, where people can come together and, and have these platforms to work either virtually or physically together is really important. And we are well on our way to a world of cloud corporations. And I think this is a great vision for this. That fits in perfectly with the rise of the naked economy. That's right. And so, I mean, I think people, there's estimates that an, an, one office can cost a company up to $100,000 per year. So when companies are trying to figure out, and then most offices are vacant two-thirds of the time. So at some point, the folks who are, are running these numbers in these companies are going to figure out we are spending an enormous amount of money to have mostly empty, empty offices, and they start going virtual. And, you know, we've done studies here in Santa Cruz. We're about an hour away from Silicon Valley, and what we found was the people who work over there, if you let them stay here and not fight traffic an hour each way each day, they'd take at least a 10% pay cut. That's, there's, there's, there's huge economic benefits of going virtual, keeping in mind that people still need to be around people. So you can't just send everybody home and let them work in their pajamas and expect them to create great outcomes. You need to now figure out ways that they can, they can collaborate in order to uh, succeed. Now, you say there are three aspects of this new economy uh, going forward. People, place, and policy. Let's start with people. You give the example of Jeff Levish, who's the CEO of uh, uh, Fat Tire, New Belgium Brewing. Yeah, so New Belgium, which makes Fat Tire, is an incredibly innovative company that has decided that people are the key to their success, and they're growing exponentially. And they've just become an employee-owned organization. They've handed the keys over to their employees, and they give them a huge amount of freedom, recognizing all kinds of workplace flexibility and fun and ways that they can be involved. And so it's not all about kicking everybody out and everybody working at co-working spaces. They're manufacturing a product, so obviously people need to be at a place at a time, but you can do it in a completely different way. They're a democratic company, which is kind of shocking. <laughs> yes, uh, no, and they're they're fully committed. They don't make big decisions unless they have buy-in from committees that are diverse. So you have the brewer, and you have a marketer, and you'll have uh, HR person, and they'll all be on these committees. And they don't make decisions unless they have buy-in. You also talk about the expectations of the the millennials, and how this leads to mentoring, reverse mentoring, and peering. I think these are really interesting concepts, and it's it's nice to see this happening. Yeah, so this is a generation that has been told from day one how incredibly talented and special they are. And so the idea that they're just going to show up at work and just do a task because you tell them to do it is not about the great model. They will work hard, but you're going to have to engage them. They expect to be fulfilled. They expect 
to have friends. They, they will work day and night on their computers and phones and laptops and whatever, but they need to have a sense of meaning. And one of the ways we get a sense of meaning is from, our, is from other people. And so figuring out how to connect people is, is vital. You also talk about pure payments, and I think that we're heading towards what uh, Cory Doctorow called the reputation-based economy, where what people think of you really matters. Yeah, uh, so we talked to Linden Labs, and they came up with a thing called the Love Machine, where it's peer-to-peer evaluation of, of employees. It's anonymous, and that part of the pay is peer-to-peer. It's you decide how much people who are working get paid, not what a manager who may or may not know what's actually going on decides how much they get paid. And as networks get better and as technology gets better, I think you're going to move to that model because they're getting better outcomes. Uh, that's such a so great and so innovative. Now, you, next step in, in our progression is to place. And we're at the perfect place here, next space, which is really, I think, in many ways, the workplace of the future. You describe Kevin Kusky as the man without a desk. Yeah, and the ironic thing is Kevin Kusky makes desks for a living, right? He sells <laughs> desks for a living. Uh, so uh, he runs a, an office furniture company, but he understands that that's the idea of you having your desk and your office with you know everything else is a fast, fleeting phenomenon. And he's trying to figure out what's the future of work look like when work is mobile, when work is not a place, it's a state of mind. And so they're seeing where the market's going, and they're they're putting in some big changes, and so people should be ready to give up at least some of their desk. We, we, here at NextBase, we've realized that while people are social animals, they're also territorial. They like to have their stuff, their desk, their place, and so figuring out how to balance all that will be really essential. I see in front of me, you have essentially what is the workplace of the future, laptop i saw a smartphone you got yep. a book what more do you need you are ready to work from anywhere and so why are you going to make me sit inside some fluorescent cubicle hell when i can be just as effective or even more effective working at a restaurant or a coffee shop or on the beach so let workers work where they're going to be happiest and you're going to get better results and this is so interesting to me because it is such an essential redefinition of work and i think that this book does a great job of giving us insight into what that's like, both the you know, the benefits and the dangers, or the terrors, as it were. <laughs> I'd like you to talk about Plantronics, because they, they're doing something really interesting, too. I like Plantronics. They're right around the corner from us, aren't they? They are. They are right around the corner. And what they recognized is that uh, they had a lot of cubicles, and they weren't getting the best results. And they had a lot of empty desks, right? Because people are out on sales calls. People are having meetings, people are out sick or whatever it is. So they said, let's let's create a flexible space that allows people to come together and work creatively, but let's also, um, we can fit more people into less space. And so as a corporation, they save a lot of money every year by not creating their own space that's mostly empty for each individual employee. And, and everything we've heard is they're seeing great results for it, from it. You know, this is such a, a great idea because, I mean, this is something that can appeal to uh, those paragons of evil, the, the bean counters, who are often look to say, well, what can we get rid of? Well, we have to get rid of people, we have to cut people, we have to cut benefits, where when you, if you just take this step back from the whole problem, why not just reduce the size of the workplace? Because as you say, if it's empty two-thirds of the time. If it's empty, and yeah, and you're not only paying for an office, you're paying for the parking space, you're paying for the power, you're paying for the insurance. I mean, when you start 
adding up the cost of pulling, putting all these people, forcing all these people into one place at one time. And what you're also saying when, you're, when you have a, a corporation like that is, I will only hire the most talented people who happen to live within a 30-mile drive of me. Right, um, crazy. So in a in a global world where you should be able to access talent anywhere at any time, that's a crazy model to say. No, no, no. I I happen to put my corporation in Cupertino, so whoever lives within thirty miles of Cupertino is who I who who I want to tap. No, you can tap globally. And this gets us to the third uh, part of your program, a policy which is the idea of something simple as changing the definition. So talk about jobs that aren't jobs. This came about because at the end of the day, Jeremy and I, through our work with the city, are really policy dorks at the end of the day. And the business <laughs> stuff is great, but the policy is where where really gets decided. And one of the things is that the government doesn't count people who work, right? Work is not work. The perfect example is I got one worker who works at a desk 40 hours a week. He doesn't really work that hard, doesn't do much. And then you have another worker who works 20 hours a week at next door to that that first worker, but then also is a bartender and also maybe does some home care and maybe sells some stuff on Etsy. They're not capturing that whole second part of her life, which is actually the part of our economy that we need to grow, right? We need, we need her to grow her business. We need people to be flexible and fill in in small businesses. Um, and so we got to start capturing how people are actually working and then not penalizing people who are working the same amount but just working differently. You talk a little bit about health care in, in this book, and it, it's critical. So I'd like you to, to give us your take on health care at this moment because if every moment it's changing so fast, it's hard to keep track of it. It's changing, yeah. So at this moment, healthcare is a totally dysfunctional system that's not serving very many people at all. With the Affordable Care Act, we think it's a step in the right direction because you're allowing people to buy in to these, to these state programs that will hopefully free them up a little bit. Over the long run, we think we need a totally different model because the Affordable Health Care Act still relies on employers providing health care, but it's full-time employees. So you're now seeing these big employers shift to having more and more part-time employees so they don't have to provide health care. Well, the, we still want and need people to, to have health care. It's essential in, a, in any society. So we've started down the road, but we, need, we have a long way to go. And health care should not be a barrier to starting your own business. We have someone in Next Space. He has the funding. It's a green technology. He's got funding. He's got a team. He's ready to go. He can't leave his job because he, need, he and his family need the health care. That's crazy. What kind of economic system do you want to have where people won't innovate and create companies because they're holding on to a relic of the tax code in order to provide health care? Get the guy health care, let him start his company, and let's, let's, start, let's start growing the economy. One of the dangers of policy, too, you talk about is it's one thing to have, be a freelancer and have work for all these corporations or you know, all these entities who are out there who, who do have money. And do maybe sort of kind of intend to pay you but it's another thing to cash the check absolutely and you know the the more that the companies that can solve that the companies the virtual companies that can that allow people to know that they're going to get paid for their work is a big big deal and so you're going to have more and more platforms that are developed to connect people to the work and then also make sure that they get paid and then hopefully also make sure that there's a collective way that they can access 
job training programs. Because now if, you're, if your company is not going to provide you with job training programs, you're going to be responsible with keeping up with your training and your education that provide you with health care, that provide you with retirement. All those things are, are accessible. We just need to build the platforms that allow people to do that. And I think one of the things that I like about this book is it, it gives us kind of a, a positive vision. I, at the end of the day, this is a positive book. And I, I really like that. So I, I'd like you to talk about, you know, you at the end, you, you ask us, you know, tell us, you know, what, what to expect. So what should we expect from the naked economy? Yeah, I think we call the chapter what to expect when you're expecting a naked economy. I think what what you're expecting is a much more dynamic economy where people are uh, responsible for their for creating and making their own lives those who can work in a community and teams will do better and if we can get smart about it and create some business strategies and policies in advance we can make it a lot less painful and maybe even prosperous and sustainable um, notice we don't we don't talk about people getting rich right because that's I'm not sure that, that model exists in the economy we have, but we talk about people being prosperous. And so if you can be home for your kids at 3 o'clock on Wednesdays in order to take them swimming, if you can be happy at your work, to us, that's where we should be working towards is that sort of prosperity and not focusing on the wealth. Because and we have a lot of people who are not, are not particularly, we profile, who are not particularly getting rich, but they're leading very comfortable, nice lives. And that's what that's where we think work should be the the focus. We're looking for a happy world, not a rich one. That's right. Yes, exactly, exactly. I've been speaking with Ryan Coonerty, with Jeremy Nooner. His new book is The Rise of the Naked Economy: How to Benefit from the Changing Workplace. Thank you for joining me, Ryan. Thank you, Rick. This is again, you do a tremendous job, and so I'm honored to be here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.